This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week. It's the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this program, as you know by now, is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart and mind. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, just a couple of things before we get right into the questions and wait your phone calls tonight here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to have our men's and women's and high school and junior high school Bible studies here um, on campus uh, 7 o'clock, the ladies, you can watch on live stream at calvarysa.com. May Cruzado is going to be teaching the ladies tonight, and uh, her husband, my friend Pastor Ken, is going to be teaching the men. Um, I had something else, but it just, this is what happens when you get old. I just lost it. But all that's going on tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Hey, uh, what I really wanted to say, this isn't the thing that I forgot, but but um, I just wanted to ask uh, Christians um, on behalf of the Lord, and I, I think I'm speaking for the Lord here. We're all on edge. Our country is. Tomorrow is election day. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the aftermath of lawlessness that is being prepared for in cities all over this country. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, and here's my appeal, and again, I think this is an appeal from the heart of God. I shared this with my church yesterday. Christians, please, if your candidate loses, don't forget who's on the throne. Let's try to respond like we actually believe Jesus is in control. Let's try to honor him by not getting into arguments with people, not... Um, speaking ill of of people that we only know by reputation. Remember, we're to be peacemakers as far as it depends on us. We need to watch what we write on Facebook. We need to watch what we put on Twitter. We need to be sure that there's no unwholesome talk coming from our mouths. We need, in effect, to honor Jesus during the election and after the election as we're supposed to every day. So Christians, please, please, please don't forget to whom you belong. What an insult it would be to God if we Christians who want one side uh, think, well, if, if our candidate loses, everything is going to go to pot. Um, what an insult that is to our Lord. So remember that the people you disagree with are to be the objects of your love. We can't let our witness be compromised by carnal behavior and all because of an election. Pray for whoever wins. Pray for the one who loses. Pray for the condition of the church 
in the United States of America, by all means, do not respond as though Jesus has suddenly lost control. Remember that as you go to vote tomorrow, for those of you who have not yet voted, and as results come in, and as the absolute chaos on the media will no doubt happen, let us be a light in that darkness rather than being compromised by the darkness itself. That's my heart. I believe that's the heart of Jesus in this. God is in control no matter who wins. And I personally don't think God has a candidate in this. I think you and I have an opportunity in the chaos that's out there to be more effective not only in sharing Jesus, but in our rightly representing Jesus than at any time in my 29 years walking with the Lord. Be different. Be light. Okay, let me get to some questions. Here's a question from Lucille. She says, I want to share my faith, but street witnessing makes me uncomfortable yelling. I just don't think that's the way to win people. Lucille, I share your concerns 100%. Um, I don't know who you've been street witnessing with, um, but if you're out there with people that are yelling, they're misrepresenting the Lord. So uh, share your faith. God will give you the gift of evangelism. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But you don't have to yell at anybody. Just talk to people. You know, one of the things that we've done here at Calvary Chapel for, for many, many years now is we've decided that our evangelism outreaches are going to be just... Uh, one-on-one or two-on-one kind of things where we're talking to people and sharing with them the goodness of God. And I wouldn't want to hear anybody standing on a bench and yelling. I wouldn't want to hear anybody uh, condemning me to hell. It is God's goodness, His kindness that leads to repentance. And we who share need to remember. So, Lucille, you have an opportunity to be a witness to the people that you're uncomfortable with Um, in the street witnessing ministry, wherever it is that you go to church. So share your faith. Talk to people. You know, uh, and this is for everybody, not just uh, you, Lucille, but um, witnessing to people, we make it so hard, and we try to make it so mystical. It's really not. It's just talking to somebody. If you're a good observer, you can always find something to talk to people about. You can look at T-shirts they're wearing, hats they're wearing, the messages that people have on all of their clothing now. You you can look at bumper stickers on cars. Um, Paul and I, we go to restaurants and we look at what people are ordering. And we'll, we'll, we'll start talking to them about their food. Hey, I've never tried that. Is that good? And, and have you been here before kind of thing? But the idea is people are really willing to talk to you. But all we have to do is look for the openings. And there's two things that everybody always is willing to talk about. The first is they're willing to talk about themselves. They're willing to talk about themselves. Ask them about who they are, where they're from. And then the ensuing conversation, Lucille, will will, uh, open so many doors. I also find that people are willing to hear what God has done in our lives. And doors will be open. You'll be able to share your faith with them, what God has done. And then the Holy Spirit will have the opportunity to work on their hearts. I think sometimes we take too much responsibility for the result. People get saved. We think, well, that was me. If they don't get saved, it was my fault. None of that's true. Our job is just, according to the parable of the sower, to sow seed, to to scatter seed everywhere we go. So, Lucille, God bless you for wanting to share your faith, but do it in a way that's consistent with who God has made you. You don't have to yell at people. You don't have to offend people, nor should you judge or condemn people. Just talk with them, and you'll be amazed at the openings that they will give you good for you. You share. And if um, you go to a church and this is the way they're doing street witnessing, maybe it's time for you to ask that question to the pastor of your church. I remember many, many years ago, um, we had a a guy at the church, I'm talking more than 20 years ago, 
Um, and, and he said, my gift is street witnessing. So I said, well, let's go out, see what you do. And he would literally get up on a bench or on a, 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 a cement thing around trees. I don't know what you call them right now, but a planter. Uh, and he would just sort of take Old Testament prophecies and shout them. And I told him, I said, you know what? If you're going to do that, you do it for another church because I'm not going to be embarrassed like that ever again. I don't want Jesus to be embarrassed like that again. So cherish the opportunity to share your faith, but do it in a way that people would know that it's loving. I love that question, Lucille. Thank you. Lance wants to know, the Bible was written by men, so why do Christians claim it is the Word of God? Uh, Lance, uh, I don't know how long you've been listening to this program, but this was my um, real struggle. When I became a brand new believer, I was so curious about everything. Um, This was the one thing that I really couldn't understand. Uh, I'm unique in the sense that I was never around Christians or or raised uh, in church. Uh, I had never opened a Bible. When I got saved, I'd never opened a Bible before. And so I had no understanding. Uh, the Bible was a book. I knew it was written by men. Um, but Christians always would say, the Word of God, the Word of God. And here's what I did. I decided one day that if I've got all these questions, and every time I ask a question, the answer is, well, the Bible says I've got to determine whether or not this really is the Word of God or it's just a book written by men. And Lance, I've told the story many times. Here's the, the Cliff Notes version. Um, it took me almost three months of solid, dedicated study, wanting one thing and one thing only. Jesus, if this is you, your word, I need to know. Now, I know people that spend lifetimes trying to get to this place. God was gracious with me. It took just less than three months. And I'll never forget that moment when I was sitting in a, in a, a school of theology library, had all these books on a table, And um, it was as though Jesus were sitting in that room with me. And he looked at me and he asked me, so now what are you waiting for? What more proof do you need? And Lance, I just knew that this was the word of God. So you need to make that commitment. There is no more important question that you will ever ask than the one that you're asking in terms of your relationship with God and growing in the knowledge of God and knowing in the or growing in the knowledge of God's will for your life. When I made that determination, I was absolutely certain this is God's word. From that point forward, I've never had a single moment's doubt about my salvation. I've never had a moment's doubt about the goodness of God or the love of God. I've never been lost or confused in the sense that, well, I don't know what to do because the instructions are right there in the Word. Now, Lance, I'm going to give you a couple of books. If you are interested in them, great. If not, uh, um, um, this is just something you've got to do. Instead of just asking questions about what Christians claim, find out who you are. One book is a book by F.F. Bruce called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Another one is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a new edition, so the new Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Now, those are both scholarly works. If you want to start with something a little easier, Lee Strobel's written a book called The Case for the Bible. Uh, A man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, has written two little Uh, paperbacks, know what you believe and know why you believe. And they will give you some direction in your search. But Lance, there isn't anything more important in your life right now than finding out the answer to your question. And I can tell you it's the Word of God. God's confirmed that to me over and over and over. And I've enjoyed seeing the, the majesty of the Word of God at work, not only in my life, but in the lives of others. As a Bible teacher, I get to see the fruit of of the gift that God has given me. But you can't take my word for it. This is a decision that you have to make. And you need to dig in and find out what's true. I can talk about the canon of Scripture. I can talk about how we got our Bible. Um, The Bible itself says that 
the Spirit of God is pushing the pins of men. Uh, of men. We, we don't deny that men are actually the vessels that are writing the Bible. But it's the Spirit of God pushing the pin. And when you come to the place where you are completely confident that this really is God's Word, it will change everything in your life. Peace, joy, direction, passion. And let me add protection from the lies of an enemy. So then you've got to find out for yourself. As I said, there's no more important question you will ever ask as it relates to your walk with Jesus. Lots of people will be praying for you, Lance. Here's a question from Rick. Pastor Ron, when someone asks for proof of God's existence, how can I respond? Um, you know, um, Rick, I'd start with the Bible. I, w- I wouldn't say the Bible says, because when someone asks for proof of God's existence, they're an unbeliever. So I would ask questions. Where does the sun come up every morning? They'll answer the question. Well, in the east. Where does the sun set every evening? Every winter, is it cold? Every summer, is it warm? You see, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There's no nation or language where they're not understood. And Rick, I believe instinctively we all know that. It's not an accident that the sun comes up every day in the east. That's the best part of my day. When I, I, I go out and I look this morning because the sky was so clear and the sun so bright, I could walk out and I could just look at that sun and, and thank Jesus for being there with me. You can ask them things about Right and wrong. Conscience. Who gave you a conscience? That's Romans chapter 1, by the way. Be willing to be asked questions. But respond. Now here's something I want to share. This is important, Rick. Don't be embarrassed by the faith component. When you say the sun comes up in the east every day, it rises, it, it sets in the, in the west every, every evening. We see the seasons come and go. What you have to do is you have to seek the creator of that design. And you have to do it by faith. Don't be embarrassed by the faith component. A lot of times we will talk about faith and, and, and unbelievers will say, well, there you go, throwing out the faith card. Say faith is a good thing. You can ask them, what things do you have faith in? And I promise you, they're going to be a lot sillier than the one that you have faith in. So tell them. Look at the evidence. Come to a conclusion. Add the component of faith. And you're going to end up believing just like I did. And usually those kind of conversations, Rick, will open doors for a conversation to share a little bit about your story, what God has done in your life. And nobody can deny what God has done in your life. You're the expert. So you give him proof. One other vital piece of proof, sort of the coup de grace. There was a man who lived. His name was Jesus. Nobody denies that. No one without an agenda denies that. That man was murdered, though he did nothing wrong. He was a man accredited with doing miraculous things. There's secular historical evidence. And then when they killed him, there's an equal amount of evidence that he didn't stay dead, that he's alive. And he's the one that you believe by faith. I don't know how much more proof you need than an empty tomb. A man who was dead, well, his body wasn't there. And then challenge him to look it up. You check out the facts. And then ask God for the gift of faith to believe and he'll give it to you. I love the questions today so far. we got people wanting to share their faith. 
Jennifer says, why does God allow such evil in the world if he is a loving God? Jennifer, whenever I get this question, I always ask a question in response. The question is, why blame God for the evil? Why blame God for the evil in this world? It's mankind who messes up. We're the ones who, who do the evil. Now, if your question is, why does God allow it? Why didn't God stop it? Well, he's going to do that. He's coming soon. And he's going to reestablish his authority in this world. But right now, he's patient. He's waiting patiently because he, he wants everybody who's going to believe to believe. He's unwilling and he should perish. Now, let me answer in a more logical way, Jennifer. If God stopped evil today, well, there'd be one way to stop the election, wouldn't it? <laughs> but if God stopped evil today, what would he do with you? Jennifer, I don't know you, so I don't mean anything personal by asking this question, but did you have sex with somebody you're not married to recently? That's evil in God's eyes. Did you gossip about somebody? That's evil in God's eyes. Is there some pride in your life that's evil in God's eyes? If God were to stop evil, he'd have to stop you as well. Now, we humans, we sort of grade evil on a sliding scale. Well, you know evil. I'm talking about like terrorists. I'm talking about uh, uh, mass murders and all those things. No, all evil to God. When, he's gonna, when he stops it, it's all going to stop, Jennifer. And right now, in his patience, he's waiting for people like you to ask him to be forgiven for your sins. He's eager to do so. And all you have to do is believe that he is who he said he was. He said he was God. He said he was the only way to heaven. So don't look at God like he's the cause of evil. God is the only one with the answer to evil, and the answer's name is Jesus. You know, Jennifer, I've, I, I, this has been a really hard time for me personally in the sense that I'm a, I was a journalism major in college and sort of a, an information junkie. I've got a pretty good memory, um, pretty good mind, so uh, I, 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 I like information. Uh, I've been able to, to, to turn on news, read news, um, dig into things. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not able to participate in cultural things, movies and music and all those things because it's so wicked. And believe me, I am no prude. And I have been crying out, oh Jesus, come quickly. I mean, one of the things I'm most grateful for is that after tomorrow there won't be any more campaign commercials on TV. And yet, God has put us here at a time like this because this is the best voice we'll ever have. So Jennifer, I'm telling you who would ask a question, God allowed pure evil to murder his son. And the reason he allowed that to happen was because he loved you. He loved you so much that he decided to die so that you could live. He took the punishment that your sins and mine deserve and he did it because he loved you so much he couldn't bear to see you suffer. We had communion yesterday in church and, and um, that's really what communion is all about. And he did that just for you. And right now, Jennifer, the one thing God wants to do is deal with the evil in you. Now, you're not unique. We've all got evil in us. But Jesus says, I'm the answer for that. You give me that wickedness, and I'll give you my perfection. And your place in heaven will be guaranteed. So, Jennifer, don't blame God. Look at the real cause of evil. And that's the people who do the evil. And yet those are the very people, hard to figure this out from a human perspective, 
but those are the very people that are the object of his love. He loves you that much. He's that crazy about you. Okay, we're inside a minute now, so the music is going to start going. We'd love your calls and questions uh, in the second half of the program. Remember, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, our men's and women's uh, Bible studies at 7 o'clock, uh, calvarysa.com. You can watch the ladies on live stream. Um, and we'll also, of course, have our uh, junior high school and high school studies at the same time. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in our program, uh, 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. See you on the other side of the break. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Phones have been quiet. Certainly after a weekend, you've got some questions. 340-9585, here is an anonymous question. In fact, I have two of them. Uh, the first one is, says, can someone who is an addict be born again? The answer is yes. Um, here's the thing, and this is another area where we've really got to understand what faith means. Um, not name it and claim it faith, but real faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, when someone is born again, they are no longer an addict. Now, they may be physically addicted to a substance, um, but... If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And not we've got to decide whether or not we believe it. Now, if you've got somebody in your life, you're struggling, or, or they're struggling with addiction, and they've claimed to have met Jesus, it doesn't mean that they're, they're not telling you the truth. It just means that right now their relationship with God is certainly a lot weaker than their addiction to whatever the substance is. I think we've got to take two approaches. The first is psychological. I don't mean psychology. I mean, we've got to appeal to the mind. Do you understand what this says? The old is gone, the new has come. Explain that to me. Sin shall no longer be your master, Paul writes to the church at Rome. Do you believe that? Ask people to explain what that means. Whenever you are tempted, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God is faithful. And he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can. But do you believe that? And so we've got to open up that kind of a, a, a conversation so that we can change their mind. You know, we live in a world that, that says, you know, and, and even some, unfortunately, some Christian programs for uh, addiction, 12 steps, once an addict, always an addict, that's completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches. If someone is struggling with addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or anything else, then it doesn't mean they're not born again. It means that they're living a life as though they're not. And they need not do that. So we don't judge whether or not they're born again. We just let them know what it means to be born again. And then we remember the Holy Spirit is the key here. The Holy Spirit has to bring that to life to them. They've got to believe it. And then the power of the Holy Spirit will overcome. You know, we have had a lot of people who've come to our church addicts. Over the years, many. I've got a couple of guys in the church, most notably Pastor Juan. God bless him. I love him so much. But but he's spent um, uh, two and three nights with people um, while they go through withdrawals. And then when that's done, they're no longer physically addicted, then the issue is an issue of the mind. And then we can, we can deal with that. 
But if someone is using being an addict to justify sinning, well, that's the man or the woman that I would say is probably not born again. You pray for them, you witness to them, but don't judge based on on uh, on, on their behavior. Drugs, alcohol, other things can be really, really hard. If somebody really doesn't know Jesus very well, they're going to struggle with that. Here's a sad one, anonymous. Uh, Pastor, my wife left me, and I am believing God to reconcile my marriage. She's already with someone else and planning a wedding. What can I do to prevent her from marrying so we can be together? Now, let me say at the beginning that I can feel the pain in this question. I can absolutely feel the pain. And I'm so sorry for that pain. But if she's, remember, she has a free will just like you do. If she is bound and determined to be with somebody else and marry that other person, there's nothing in this world that you can do to prevent her from marrying somebody else. You know, the reason these this kind of question bothers me is there's a whole sort of a, a sub-ministry out there for people in a situation like you and they get together and say, no, God hates divorce and this is this is my soulmate or this is the one for life. And, and so um, uh, I've given my heart to Jesus. I'm believing God's going to bring... That's not practical. We forget that the Bible says if the unbeliever leaves, let him, let her leave. So there's nothing that you can do. Here's what you can do. Not so that you can be together, but here's what you can do so that the power of God can rest upon you. You can get closer to Jesus starting right now than you've ever been before. Stop thinking about your wife. Stop thinking about reconciliation and start being with Jesus. Learn who he is. Learn how good he is. Learn how much he loves you in your pursuit of finding out who he is and what his will for your life is, you're going to find out that if you seek him, you'll be found by him. But now, your only remedy is to be healthy with Jesus. You know, it's a little disingenuous when somebody exercises their free will to run away from God for us to pray that God would stop that exercise of free will and bring him back to us. So here's a good way to think about this. This is a time to find out whether or not you love Jesus more than you love your wife. Do you love Jesus more than you love her? Would you run to Jesus if he never, ever came back? Or if she never, ever came back? Is Jesus and what he's already done for you enough? You've got to accept the decisions that people make. We don't like it, but we've got to accept those decisions. I hope that helps, and pray, pray, pray. Here's a caller anonymously called into the studio. Would we be lost if Jesus hadn't come? Well, no, because it was always God's plan to redeem us. And so if Jesus didn't come when he came... He would have come another time. So, you know, hypothetical questions really have very little value. Without Jesus, to be sure, we are all lost. But he did come, and we can now be found. Uh, All we have to do is surrender to him. The moment sin entered the world, humanity was doomed. We're going to live, and then we're going to die, and we're going to spend eternity separated from God. But Jesus came over and over, and the gospel says at just the right time. And when he came, that problem was remedied. So Jesus did come. I really don't ever see any value in asking questions like, well, what if he didn't come? Uh, Because the truth is, he did come. But it was always God's plan, caller. It was always God's plan to rescue us because he loved us. Hard to figure why he would love us, but he did. Yesterday in 1 Corinthians, I'm teaching about the, 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 the condition of our lives before Christ. Brothers, think what you were. 
before you were saved. Not many were wise. Not many were influential. Not many were noble. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and on and on. Well, we were those things, and God set his love upon us, and there wasn't anything at all that we could do to change that. So praise God he's here. Praise God he's coming soon. Maybe, just maybe, he'll come before this mess that we've got before us with our election in this country. Thank you for calling in. Let's go to Mason County and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling again. You are on the air. I appreciate you, Pastor Ron. I've got almost Bible trivia here in some respects, but Paul talks about the traveling rock in 1 Corinthians 10 or the rock that followed him. I get the rock being Christ, but is there the possibility that that rock actually followed him around and provided him water in the wilderness? Uh, Ron, I'm, I'm laughing because when I taught that, uh, it's been some years now. Actually, actually, we're in First Corinthians again now on Sunday, so I'll be getting to it not for quite a while. But, but um, um, I, I, when I taught it, I just thought, you know, I wonder if they just thought, you know, that that rock looks familiar. Every time they get thirsty, there'd be rock water pouring out of this rock, and and um, and, and boy, that, that rock looks like the same rock that we saw, you know, a month ago. And um, uh, that that's just to sort of help us understand that Jesus was always there with them. But uh, remember, he was there in his presence, in the presence of the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. But no, it wasn't a rock, the same rock that followed him around. That's metaphorical language. But, but he was the provider of the rock. So it could have been any rock at any place, and Jesus would have given them that life-giving water. There's something else that I always think about, Ron, when I think about that passage. Um, I'm a I'm a big water drinker. I drink a lot of water. I've been doing it since I got saved, really. But um, imagine how that water tasted. Cold, clear, perfect. Imagine how that water tasted. It's an amazing thing. I, I, I'm like you, Ron. I like thinking about those things. But no, it wasn't the same rock that just magically appeared everywhere they were. Uh, Jesus just used any rock at all. And I, I, I just, I love that picture. But that rock was Christ. In other words, he was the source, of course, of the water. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Ricardo. The Old Testament covenants are often called eternal or everlasting. How could Jesus give us a new covenant if the old one is everlasting? Now, Ricardo, you've opened up a, 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 an area of theology, or dispensationalism, that's really important. Now, um, when Jesus gave us a new covenant, he canceled the old. And we're told that the old covenant that he made with Abraham, that he made with David, um, that he made with, with Moses... Those old covenants were called everlasting, and those old covenants are going to come again in uh, the millennial kingdom of God. So all of the promises that God made to to uh, to the, the fathers of, of Judaism, all of those are going to be literally and specifically fulfilled. And it will be everlasting, and all those promises will be fulfilled not only in the millennium, but into eternity forever and ever. So when Jesus came, he said, okay, and, and when he said, this is a cup of the new covenant written in my blood, here's what he's saying, is the way I dealt with Jews in the law is different than the way I'm going to deal with you from this point forward. Now, we got plenty of prototypes for that. You know, when, when um, uh, Moses was alive, God dealt with the Israelites through Moses. Moses was the spokesman. When Joshua replaced Moses... Um, um, Joshua was Moses is dead. That's the way I love the way Joshua began. Moses, my servant, is dead. Get over it. I spoke to them through Moses, but you, Joshua, have my word. Don't fear to the left or to the right, but keep my word ever before you. So there was another way. I spoke through Moses. Now, Joshua, I'm going to speak through the word that Moses brought. 
You know the word, you follow the word, and, and I'm going to be with you. So he deals with us differently in different times. When Jesus came, Hebrews 1.1, by the way, says uh, of, of uh, this thing of dispensationalism in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in Son, a new way of dealing with humanity. So um, the new covenant is also everlasting. The old covenant, which was given not to you or to me, Ricardo, but it was given to Jews. It's everlasting for Jews. And when all of those covenants are fulfilled, we're going to find that there's not a single contradiction, but they all blend so wonderfully together. So I think the way to understand um, the Old Testament promises, the Old Testament covenants, is to make sure that we're dealing with them dispensationally. To whom was he speaking? You know, uh, I have another question. I won't get to it today. Uh, but it's a question about the Sabbath. Well, it's to be celebrated forever and ever. Well, Jesus is our Sabbath, so we're actually celebrating it every day. It's just different than it was presented to Israel. And for any New Testament Christian to believe that, that, that the Sabbath commandment, or any of the commandments for that matter, were given to us, New Testament believers, is to misunderstand the purpose and intent of the Bible. So the way to deal with these questions, Ricardo, is dispensationalism. Let me recommend a Schofield Study Bible, um, C.E. Schofield, S-C-H-O-F-I-E-L-D. Um, uh, he's got a lot of neat stuff on dispensationalism. You have to be cra- uh, careful because there's a lot of crazy dispensationalists out there. But um, it's basically understanding the word based on Bible study. Who was he speaking to? What was the purpose? And to whom were the promises given? Jesus, when he changed all that, Jesus wasn't saying, okay, I'm not going to keep those promises anymore because, as I said, they're going to be fulfilled. But he has spoken to us very differently. Thanks for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Robert says, this is an interesting question, Robert. How much authority should a father have over his adult children? Um, Robert, the answer to that question is going to be determined by where that child lives, under whose roof he or she lives. Now, obviously, we live in a time where uh, adult children have been out, uh, they haven't done well, and they come back and they just kind of stay at home. Well, in that case, you have as much authority over that adult child as you had over him when he was a 10-year-old. It's that simple. He's under your roof. You're paying his bills or at least helping to support him. Your house belongs to Jesus, so you exercise authority. And I don't care how old the child is, you got a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old who's living at home, they need to be under the authority of the head of the house and the head of your house is Jesus. So we don't, because they're adults, say, well, you know, I can't tell you what to do anymore. You can tell them what to do. In fact, you have to tell them what to do as long as they're on your dime. And by that I mean they're under your roof and you're supporting their lifestyle. Robert, when we have grown children at home whose parents are subsidizing their sin, then we've lost um, the perspective of what being a, a godly parent is. So if that's the case, then you still have the same authority as you always have had. Now, if your adult child is out of the house and they're on their own, then you have no authority over them. They may or may not ask for advice, but you don't get to control their behavior. And this is especially true, Robert, when when your child gets married. Uh, there's too many parents, and sadly even Christian parents, who try to intervene or interfere in, in a marriage. You've lost all authority. The husband leaves the parent, the wife leaves the parent, and the husband and the wife cling together. 
So you've lost all authority. Let me also say this, Robert. There is nothing quite as rewarding for a parent. I've got two grown boys and now I've got grandchildren. There's nothing quite as wonderful as having your sons, in my case their sons, as friends. I love the fact that I can talk to my boys, that they can talk to me. I love the fact that we can laugh. I don't insert myself in their lives unless we're invited. I love the fact that they invite me to do so at times. But I would never presume. I've got one saved son and one unsaved son. And the unsaved son's the nicest kid in the world. I'm so proud of him. He's a great dad. He's a great husband. But I, I would never insert myself into his decision-making without an invitation to do so. I have every confidence that Jesus is chasing him and he's going to get saved. But I would never try to exercise authority over them. And I wish he was listening to this. I wish both my boys were listening to this because they, they would correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't want to be that obtrusive parent. So no authority at all if they're out of your house. Um, you want to be praying for them. You want to be living your life in Christ in such a way that they can see the fruit coming from your life so that when they mess up and they get in trouble, they know that you have the answers. That way they're, they're free to come to you. But for you to try to exercise authority in your adult child's life is really and truly a mistake if, in fact, they don't live with you. So I hope that makes sense to you, Robert. Thank you for the question. Inside five minutes now, Alan says, Oh, Alan, I feel your pain. He says, Pastor Ron, it seems at times like God wants me to struggle. Is that true? Um, Alan, yeah. Sometimes he wants you to struggle. I know it doesn't seem fair. It's certainly not fun. But when God wants you to struggle, it's because he's trying to teach you something. And almost always that, that lesson is to depend on him. You know, sometimes we'll make decisions or we'll purpose in our heart to, well, I want this or I want that. And, and, and if we won't listen to the Lord, then he'll leave us alone and we'll find ourselves having made a mess of things and, and God will kind of sit on the sidelines and watch. And when we cry, well, help God, why are you doing this to me? He knows if our heart really wants to change or not. But yeah, sometimes he wants you to struggle because it's only in our struggles that we really hold on to him. It's in our really difficult trials that we know, we're aware that we can't handle things on our own. If you're not struggling, then you think, hey, I got this. And we keep making bad decisions. In this particular case, there are times when God wants you to struggle because what he's trying to do is get you to say, God, I can't do this on my own anymore. I need you. I need you. When we get to that place, that's where you can almost hear the Lord sort of take a sigh of relief. Finally, now I can help you. But yeah, there's times he wants you to struggle. There's other times he wants you to struggle, Alan. Let me give you an example. He wants you to learn to trust him. And you may be right in the middle of his will. Everything may be going great. But he's testing you to see what's in your heart. And if it's in your heart to trust him, then everything is going to work out. Maybe not the way you hope it would, but certainly everything is going to work out. And when you're done, when you're through that struggle, you're going to know him a little bit better. You're going to trust him a little bit longer the next time. So there's always um, struggles in our life. We're told not to think it's strange. When we encounter trials of many kinds, they're part and parcel of every human's life. We who are believers have the advantage, Alan, because we don't have to go through them alone. Here is a question from Antonio. It'll be the last one we can take for today. He said, I hear people say things like, God told me or God said. And then his question is, how does one learn to hear God's voice like other people seem to? Uh, Antonio, a couple of things. Most of the time when people say, God said they have no clue what they're talking about. You know, we can convince ourselves that God wants us to do something when in reality it's what we want to do. If you think God is speaking to your heart, 
then you better be sure that he's speaking to you through his word, that you know his word, because if you don't know his word, you're not going to be able to judge those impressions that God leaves with you those times when he speaks to your heart. Now, make no mistake, God speaks to our heart. He speaks to us in his word. That's the primary means of communication. But there are times when God will speak to us in his heart, but if we don't know the word, we're not going to be able to discern whether or not that impression that we have or, or, or that still small voice of God is really from God or not. So most of the time when people think like God said, I've had people tell me God said I could divorce my husband without biblical grounds, or God told me I could divorce my wife. Well, do you have biblical grounds? Well, then God didn't tell you. Yes, he did. I'm sure he did. God wants me to be happy. I've heard people say that to me all the time. No, God doesn't care about you being happy. He wants you to be obedient so you can find your joy, your fulfillment in him. Those are the important things. So the way you learn to hear God's voice, Antonio, is to know the word. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Dig in. Don't wait until you, you you know, well, that's going to take years. No, he'll speak to you as you're in the word. And when he really wants to get your attention, you will know beyond any doubt that that was God speaking to you. And when he speaks to your heart, he's going to tell you what to do with what you heard. Good question, Antonio. Hey, thanks for calling today. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember, we've got our men's and women's Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. CalvarySA.com, ladies, for the live stream. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word, vote, and then behave like you trust Jesus. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.